Thanks so much, Katie, and uh, good morning, everybody. What a glorious sunshine day. Steve was just saying we should have done a whole service outside, and wouldn't have that been wonderful? If only we could plan on such glorious weather, we would put the seats out and we would stay out there. Uh, I want to apologize for those of you who were expecting to have Josh preaching this morning. He was uh, scheduled to preach, um, and uh, when you get Josh talking on the subject of power, you get passion and brilliance and enthusiasm that I cannot imitate uh, today, so I won't bother trying, but we will reschedule him. He unfortunately has succumbed to um, a bug and is not with us today. But I want to talk a bit about Palm Sunday, and I want to talk about it in the context of thinking about power, about passion, and about purpose. Uh, And that's obviously because I'm an Anglican priest, and we like things to go in threes and all begin with the same letter. So those are your three things for today, power, passion, and purpose. And I want to begin by setting a bit of the scene, because we've heard outside uh, the reading that marks the beginning of... um, Holy Week, uh, the beginning of the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, uh, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, and then we've just heard a little bit about the events right at the end of the week, um, on, before Jesus is crucified, when he's standing behind Pilate and the crowd are gathered and they're calling out for Jesus' crucifixion. Um, so the beginning of the week, later on in the week, near the end, uh, two crowds, a crowd welcoming Jesus and then a crowd calling out, crucify. How did that happen? What was going on? What was happening? Uh, and what does it mean for us today? What difference will it make to us when we think about power, when we think about passion, and when we think about purpose? Uh, all this week there have been uh, children here in our Easter holiday club uh, learning the story of Moses and the Exodus. And they've l- been learning the story of how uh, God, through Moses, led his people out of slavery in Egypt into freedom uh, and eventually into the promised land. Now that's important to think about because that was the context in which the uh, celebrations in Jerusalem in the week of Jesus' crucifixion were occurring. Because many Jews from around the country had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Passover was the, the festival at which they celebrated that story of God through Moses leading people out from slavery in Egypt into freedom. So what's the essence of this story of the Passover? Well, it's a celebration of the power of God setting his people free from the hands of an oppressive occupying force. It's a celebration of nationalistic triumph. God's on the side of the Israelites. Yeah. And songs are sung about Pharaoh and his army being drowned in the sea. Pharaoh and his army, Exodus 15, the song of Moses and Miriam. Uh, Pharaoh and his army were drowned, both horse and rider drowned. Yeah, God's on our side, we won. Pharaoh and the Egyptians were all killed. There were songs sung uh, in this week leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection about enemies' heads being dashed upon rocks as they sang some of the Psalms. There were songs sung about a coming Messiah who would overthrow all occupying Forces. So it's just worth trying to paint in your picture an, an image of Jerusalem at, the, at, at this week. When Jesus arrives, he's not the only Jew coming to Jerusalem for Passover. There are hundreds, thousands, possibly tens of thousands of Jews traveling from around the country into this small little city to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate this incredible feast that they've been celebrating for hundreds of years that commemorated God overthrowing oppressive occupying forces 
a celebration of nationalistic triumph. Just hold that in your mind as you think about how the Romans, who were themselves the oppressive occupying forces garrisoned in Jerusalem, might have felt about this week. It's a time of heightened emotion. and We should be careful with our analogies, but it might be worth drawing upon some of the events we've witnessed in the past few years. Remember the scenes of the riots in 2011? You know, mobs of young people running through the streets, uh, smashing windows, looting, setting fire to things, all caught up in that kind of intoxicating thrill of um, violence and destructiveness. Think about um, the scenes from Marseille last summer when uh, English and Russian football hooligans clashed and there were riots in the streets. Think particularly about those sporting tournaments where kind of nationalistic competition and fervor takes over and people do stupid things that they wouldn't normally do because they've drunk too much and they're gathered together around this kind of nationalistic identity and they're, they're defining themselves over and against the other and getting into fights and arguments. Now those analogies are not perfect but the images might help us when we try to imagine Jerusalem 2,000 years ago with a Roman occupying rule, soldiers garrisoned around Jerusalem, a kind of shaky peace deal done with the chief priests and the Jewish council to try and keep the peace and keep everything in order, giving them just enough authority to make it look like they're kind of in control, even though really the Romans are calling the shots. And hundreds, thousands of people gathering to celebrate the time in the past where God delivered them from the hand of the oppressor and the occupier and to pray that God would do the same thing once again. Toxic, mix, heady time. And that might help us make more sense of what it was like for Jesus and his disciples, those most intimately connected to him as they arrived at this time. So there's a lot at stake in this week running up to the events of Good Friday. I want to look at them briefly under the headings of Power, Passion and Purpose. So first of all, power, because there's an extraordinary demonstration of two different kinds of power at work in these events. Imagine a boxing match, where in a boxing match you have a big auditorium, a boxing ring in the center, and the contestants enter from different corners, in the red corner, and you know, there's great fanfare, and somebody comes down with their cheering, and then on the opposite side, in the blue corner, and another contestant comes in, and the whole thing is set up to be adversarial, it's set up to be a conflict, a competition, a fight, you're standing facing one another, coming in, and they try to intimidate each other, don't they? I mean, I don't really follow boxing, I don't really like it, but, you know, I've seen enough on TV and the news that intimidation, conflict, antagonism, adversarial kind of posturing is absolutely critical to it. Well, Pilate is in Jerusalem. We know this because Jesus is taken to see him. Why is Pilate in Jerusalem? It's not where he lives. He lives in Caesarea, up on the coast in Israel. So why is Pilate there? Well, Pilate has come with uh, a regiment of Roman soldiers, troops, to reinforce the garrison at Jerusalem. Why? Why has he come there? He's come because the Passover feast was notorious for being a time where riots broke out because of everything that we have just described. So Pilate is bringing troops to kind of sit and be stationed there and to be mobilized into action should trouble or fighting or riots break out. It's a show of his military strength. 
However you are feeling as a Jew coming up to Jerusalem for the Passover, however intoxicated upon the possibility of deliverance from the occupier you felt, you would still see soldiers with armor and swords. And you knew that they were powerful. You knew that they had strength. Passover is a potentially incendiary time. Riots are likely. Pilate comes with his troops. Where does he come from? He comes from uh, the west. The west is actually over there in this church. So he comes from the west. So Pilate is coming in from the west over there with his troops from Caesarea. Comes down the coast, cuts in towards Jerusalem. He's coming in from one side with troops, military strength, uh, occupying power, oppressive force. Jesus, on the other hand, has uh, been away from Jerusalem for a while. He's been out uh, over to the east. He's been over this way. And he comes to the Kidron Valley, where Bethany is located on one side and Bethphage on the other. And he comes via these villages, gathers together, and he comes in from the east. So you've got to have in your mind Pilate and his troops, the military, with shiny armor and swords coming from the west over there. And Jesus coming from the east over here. And as he comes and the crowds gather round him, they cut palm branches and start waving them. And, uh, and Jesus sends the disciples to go and fetch uh, a donkey. So he comes and sits on a donkey and rides in. And as he comes to Jerusalem, they lay down their cloaks and they let the donkey walk along the cloaks. What's going on? It's a very different display from the Roman arrival, but it still indicates power, just a different kind of power. Palm branches were prescribed in the Bible for the celebration of God's triumph. Leviticus 23 verse 40 says this, On the first day you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So palm branches are a sign of celebration of God's triumph. When Jehu became king of Israel, his followers lay their cloaks before him. That's reported in 2 Kings 9, 13. It says, they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. Okay, so again, this symbol, symbol of the palm branches, symbol of the cloaks, they're reminding us about God's power, about uh, kingship. And of course, there was great celebration and fanfare where Dave, when David entered Jerusalem as king, bringing the ark, the place of God's presence into Jerusalem. People sang and danced and they celebrated. Now, Jesus' entry perhaps reminded people of the great King David, perhaps even suggested that Jesus might be a greater king than David. And finally, the donkey. The donkey reminded uh, the crowd of the word of the prophet Zechariah, who had said, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's Zechariah 9 verse 9. So it's as though for every Roman soldier with a breastplate and a sword and a helmet, for every indication of military power and strength and might and coercive force, the crowd who are coming in with Jesus see other symbols of power. They see the palm branches. They see the cloaks. They sing and they dance in triumph. And they see Jesus coming on a donkey. And to the crowd watching, these are as powerful as the swords and the helmets, the breastplates, if not more. All these signs led the crowd, or at least a significant portion of them, to believe that Jesus was God's promised coming king who was to rescue Israel from the occupying power of the Romans. 
If this were a boxing match and the Romans are in the red corner and the Jesus is in the blue corner, for the Jews and the crowd around Jesus, all bets are off because God will, of course, win. He won before at the first Passover. He led his people out of slavery in Egypt into freedom. He delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. He drowned Pharaoh's soldiers and chariots and horses. Well, it's, a, it's, it's no contest, of course. God will win again. Well, how does it play out? How does it play out? The power of the crowd around Jesus does win in the end against this oppressive militaristic power represented by Pilate, but only because Pilate is willing to put his power to work for the crowd's will. So as we get to the end of the week and Jesus has stood before Pilate, Pilate finds no charge against him. He doesn't really think that Jesus is leading an uprising. His wife has a hand in that. She says he's an innocent man. She's had visions and dreams. But Pilate bends to the will of the crowd. Ultimately, the voice of the crowd, this might not be the same crowd who accompanied Jesus when he arrived into Jerusalem, but there's a crowd now outside Pilate's residence, outside uh, on the ground, and they are crying out for Jesus to be crucified. And so Pilate bends to the will of the people, and he uses that power which is easily at his disposal, the power over life and death. He says, I could release him, I could release one of them to you, as is my custom. I can crucify him. I have that power. And the crowd called for Barabbas, a notorious criminal, to be released, and for Jesus to be crucified. We don't know what the makeup of the crowd was. I suspect that some of the crowd who were there with Jesus at his triumphal entry, who were heralding his entrance, were also there crying out for him to be crucified. Because the crowd back then, like crowds nowadays, like us, we can be fickle, we can be changeable. Perhaps they had witnessed Jesus' action in the temple courts where he overthrew the money changers' tables and thought it wasn't enough of a demonstration against Roman power. Maybe it was a bit weak. Maybe you know, they weren't satisfied that Jesus really was going to lead an uprising. Maybe they had a simple bloodlust and they were captivated by the idea of seeing this, uh, this kind of prestigious rabbi from Galilee being crucified. Maybe they just had a bloodlust to see him killed. The key thing is to recognize that there is enormous power in the crowd. Despite this demonstration of power that that Pilate's military might brings, the crowd who come with Jesus, with all their symbols of power, and the crowd who gather at Pilate's residence calling out, crucify, crucify, have great power. The voices of numerous people joined together, organized, calling out for the same thing, creates relational power. There's extraordinary power in organized people. When we act together, when we work together, the world can change. And they can make a stand even against military force. It's one of the reasons we are so committed in this church to our work with Citizens UK and Hackney Citizens and Hoxton Citizens Because we know and we have seen that when we come together around issues that matter to us, such as the past two weeks when people have gathered to talk about affordable housing or about um, gangs and young people in crime in Hoxton, or today to talk about how we build a more cohesive uh, community, we know that when we gather and we share our stories and our testimonies and we talk about the things that matter to us, 
when we discover mutual passion, mutual self-interest, mutual vision, and we organize ourselves together, things change. Think back, it's almost one year since uh, over 6,500 of us gathered at the Copper Box Arena in the Olympic Park, and many of you were there, over 120 people, in fact, from this church and school uh, were there on that day. And we organized our voices, we organized together to put on a show of power that actually left Zach Goldsmith and Sadiq Khan, who were the two candidates for London Mayor, quite intimidated. They were quite overwhelmed. They said afterwards that going onto stage and standing in the middle of an arena with 6,500 people who you knew wanted specific things done on housing in London was quite intimidating. What was the result? Well, Sadiq Khan responded to some of the uh, pledges we had asked him to make and has now introduced them. The London living rent is a real thing. It is happening. Uh, the transparent public viability that we had asked for is happening. Our relational power can always have an effect on those positions of power. Mayors, prime ministers, politicians, military rulers. No matter what the position, when we are organized together, the power of the crowd is quite extraordinary. So there's an interesting way of looking at Passover and the beginning of Holy Week and these events thinking about power and what's going on and how power is used. Secondly, and more briefly, passion. We tend to think about passion, the word passion, as having to do with zealous conviction or dedicated commitment to a cause or a purpose. I'm passionate for this subject or that subject or he has a passion for football is a passion for music. We tend to think about it as zealous conviction, dedication. But at the root of the term passion, it, it's not really to do with that. Passion at, at root, from its Latin origins, about passability, is to do with being susceptible to suffering. And the two things actually connect, which I'll try and show in a moment. Our passion is that which makes us vulnerable, vulnerable to suffering. Indeed, our passion for a cause, a dedication that we have towards a particular subject or maybe a particular team or a particular issue, can lead us into conflict with those who hold conflicting passions, and that can cause us to suffer. So you see, passion in that sense of zealous dedication or commitment can lead us into suffering as we come into conflict. But the passion of Jesus is to do with his becoming susceptible to suffering and pain. Actually, that film, The Passion of the Christ, really explored this in quite a lot of depth and some quite gory detail. But I think at heart, this notion of understanding Christ's passion is understanding that Jesus was willing to make himself susceptible to pain and suffering. The ultimate power of God is the power to become powerless and obedient to death. This understanding of passion is a deep and profound human mystery because all of our instincts lead us away from suffering. Our natural response to pain or to suffering is to, is to sh- uh, shy from it, to flee from it, to try and protect ourselves, to try and insulate ourselves from being vulnerable. Except, except when those that we love are at risk or when those for whom we have a love or a compassion, 
overrides our other instincts to protect ourselves. So we do see, by some extraordinary grace, people who undergo suffering for the sake of protecting or serving those that they love. When there is somebody that you love, you'll be willing to suffer pain for them, that you might protect them. When there's somebody with whom you, you really sympathize and empathize, you're said to have compassion for them. Compassion simply means to suffer with. You're willing to suffer alongside somebody and to act in ways that perhaps are against all your natural instincts to protect yourselves or build yourselves up. We are willing to make ourselves vulnerable and susceptible to pain and suffering for the sake of that which we love. Well, that may help us to understand just how deep Jesus' love for each of us is as we reflect on the passion of Jesus in the build-up to his death. He was willing to undergo the torture, the suffering, the death, because he knew that God could redemptively use this to set us free. It would be for our sake. It was not for nothing. It was for something. It was for us. It was for humankind made in his image. It was for the world that God loved. It might change the way we think about what it means to have a passion for something. If we have a passion for a subject or a cause, are we willing to suffer for it? I have a passion for Liverpool Football Club and I have suffered for them over the years. That's a fairly kind of banal example of what I mean. When you have a passion for a particular cause, you'll go out of your way, you'll make time. You will, your finances might suffer, your time might suffer. You may put yourself into a place of risk or harm for the sake of pursuing that cause. You'll be open, you'll be susceptible, you'll be vulnerable to pain and suffering. When we understand passion in that way, it, I think, enriches our understanding of just how much God loves us because he is willing to suffer for us. So power, passion, and finally, purpose. What's the point of all this? What was the purpose? Did Jesus have a purpose when he entered Jerusalem on a donkey? Here's how the author Francis Spufford describes the events of um, the triumphal entry. He describes the visitors to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, witnessing Jesus this way, riding on a borrowed donkey, and the friends around him shouting, make way, make way, who's this? It's another prophet. It's that crazy preacher who says we don't need the law. It's the rabbi from up north who heals people. What, the river dipping one? No, he's dead. This is the other one. It's a king. Rubbish. Kings ride on horses, not donkeys. But there are prophecies about donkeys. Maybe he's the one. Oh, come on. This fellow, where's his sword? It's the king. It's the king. Is it a king? The scene is hard to read. It's like a royal progress and a parody of a royal progress all at once. It's not clear what's happening, but something is I think that's quite a helpful way of thinking about Jesus' triumphal entry. It's like a royal progress. It's like the way you might expect to see a king arriving in their city. And yet it's also like a parody of a royal progress because it doesn't quite look right. 
all at the same time. But something is happening. So was Jesus planning to overthrow the Romans by military might? Was he inciting an uprising, a revolution? Well, no, we know that he wasn't. And he deliberately avoided that implication by using the donkey. This is a deliberate claim to be the fulfillment of that prophecy of Zechariah that we heard earlier. But it's also a demonstration that God's kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Because warrior kings rode on war horses, but this king, Jesus, comes on a donkey. And Zechariah, as well as the prophecy about uh, the king entering a donkey, says this in 9 verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. This is very deliberately bringing this image of the, the, the savior king that God has who comes on a donkey being quite the opposite of the warhorse king. Jesus' rescue, to which our shouts of Hosanna testify, is far greater in scope than the Jews of his day could possibly imagine. And Jesus was unambiguous in demonstrating his purpose. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he chose the timing of Passover. He chose the symbols of Old Testament prophecy to reveal his identity. He is the one who will proclaim peace to the nations, as Zechariah had prophesied. He is the one who leads us to freedom. Not from slavery in Egypt, as at the first Passover, and not even from Roman occupation. But he leads us to freedom from slavery to sin and death. He leads us in the great Passover of Easter to freedom from our alienation, our separation from God. He leads us to the freedom to love one another selflessly. He rescues us from our anxiety and our despair and instead leads us to the freedom of joy and hope. Tom Wright describes Jesus' purpose this way. He says, with Jesus, God's rescue operation has been put into effect once for all. A great door has swung open in the cosmos which can never again be shut. It is the door to the prison where we have been kept chained up. We are offered freedom, freedom to experience God's rescue for ourselves, to go through the open door and explore the new world to which we now have access. In particular, we are all invited, summoned, to discover through following Jesus that this new world is indeed a place of justice, spirituality, relationship, and beauty, and that we are not only to enjoy it as such, but to work at bringing it to birth on earth as in heaven. Jesus' ultimate purpose is not to give us a moral example, though he does do that. It's not to inspire us to lead better lives, though he does do that too. It's not to offer us his comforting presence through difficult times, though he certainly does give us a comforting presence in difficult times. But his ultimate purpose isn't any of those things. Jesus' ultimate purpose is to rescue us from the ultimate death and separation from God to which sin has directed us. Jesus' purpose is to reconcile us to God, making peace for us within the Holy Trinity. I love um, optical illusions. I love how you look at those, and I haven't put any examples on the screen, so I apologize for that. I'm slightly rushed um, this morning. But I love when you look at an optical illusion, you can see two things in one picture. And sometimes your eyes trick you and lead you one way or the other, and it's really interesting to see who sees what first, isn't it? When Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, what do you see? What do you see? What do the crowd see? What do you see now? 
Is it an optical illusion? Are two things going on at once? Is it unclear? Is it an ambiguous image? Well, no, I don't think it's an ambiguous image. I think we've seen that Jesus chose the symbols in such a way that his purpose would be unambiguous. But perhaps it's a little bit like an optical illusion in that we need eyes of faith to see the new picture of the world that God is creating. It's almost a bit like, you know, those other, what were those other things? They were kind of optical illusions with lots of dots where they were like hidden pictures. Does anyone remember those? And you had to kind of relax your eyes and not focus too hard and then you might see the picture. I sometimes think that Christian life is a bit like that, that we have to sort of submit ourselves to let God reveal the picture. We have to slightly relax ourselves and strive a little less hard and allow God to give us eyes of faith. As we relax our vision, we let him reveal the picture of what he is doing. And those of us who have seen the picture of the world as it truly is, this picture of Jesus reconciling humanity to its creator, we are in the privileged position of helping others to see We might help our friends, our family, our neighbors see this hidden picture. We help reveal the picture of God's saving work. And we do this by the witness of our lives, by demonstrating joy and hope and self-giving love. We do this with our words as we describe the freedom that Jesus has brought to us and that he can bring to others. We do this in our community as we invite others to hear the great story of God's rescue. We do this as we look to Jesus and remind ourselves daily of his purpose. So today, this week, leading up to Easter, perhaps it's time to relax our eyes and allow God to reveal himself afresh to us. Perhaps it's time to gaze upon him and see the true picture of what he is doing, to see how power looks from God's point of view, to see how passion looks from God's point of view, to reflect again on Jesus' purpose, to see afresh the events of that first Easter, to ask that the Lord would give us eyes of faith because we know that uh, by his spirit God is enlightening the eyes of our hearts. So let's just be still for a moment and pray. God, we pray that you would help us to see afresh the events of that first Easter. Help us to know once again the power that there is in standing in solidarity with one another. The power that there is in following you, the power that comes from your spirit.
help us to receive once again that clear demonstration of your love for us in Jesus' willingness to suffer, to suffer pain and to suffer even death. Thank you that your passion for us is so great that you're willing to suffer for us. Help us to see afresh your purpose in creation, your purpose in reconciling humanity to you. And give us a renewed sense of purpose as we worship you and as we allow our lives to bear witness to your love. We ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Lord.